Well, good morning. Uh, first things first. First things first. Somebody, now I didn't go in there, so don't worry about that, but somebody left their phone in the uh, women's restroom. Women's restroom. And it's really funny because the home screen picture is a little boy kissing a gorilla. And... <laughs> And it's a real picture. It's not a, so I, it has to be somebody's. <laughs> That's a funny picture now. That's a funny picture. <laughs> okay, so, well, good. Yeah, it just seems, uh, well, we're doing good. And uh, we're here in the book of John. And uh, one of the things that we said about the book of John is that this is the place in the scriptures where you look into the face of the sun, S-O-N. So we picked uh, an eagle as our theme for the book of John because an eagle can look into the S-U-N, the gospel of John, into the sun, but the gospel of John is the gospel, it's the place where you don't so much, you do see this, but not so much, you don't so much see what Jesus did, you see who Jesus is. You're looking into the face of the Son, the Son of God. So we picked that, and uh, one of the things that helps you, I think, in your study of the book of John, uh, Sarah printed this one out for me, but if you have... Halley's or Haley's Bible Commentary. There's one in there that's fantastic too. And what it is, is it's a comparison of the Gospels and the timeline of Jesus' life. And the first thing that strikes you is this, is that there's this period called the early Judean period of Jesus about his birth and early childhood and, well, anyway, the early Judean period. What you'll find in a comparison of the Gospels is what we're reading through now is found nowhere else in the three other Gospels. This is unique to the book of John. In fact, as I mentioned to you, approximately 92% of what's in the book of John is original to that book. Isn't that fascinating? And that's by design. I mean, the Lord has chosen this Gospel. The Lord has chosen this Gospel to show you who Jesus is, not so much what he's done. And we have been running through it or going through it, and it right off the bat tells you this is different. What do I mean? Well, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we figured that out, and we talked about that, and we studied that. At the beginning... The Word already was or is or existed, and the Word is Jesus. And you say, well, I know, I'm a Christian. Well, not everybody is a Christian, and some folks who claim to be Christians don't claim that Jesus is God. So it's important and very important. And you go through this, and uh, you, you see some interesting things like this, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is verse 14, chapter 1. And we beheld his glory. Now, that's important because that glory is the glory of God. And 
you know that the Bible says that God shares his glory with no one. So if the one who was here or is here, the word was glorious and was the only begotten of the father and full of grace and truth, he's God. And that's really important. Further on you go in chapter one, and it says, no one has seen God at any time. Verse 18, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. You catch that? He has declared him. If you want to see and know God, there's a declaration of God, and that's Jesus, the son. Beautiful. See, we ought to be way more excited than this about this, okay? I mean, we should go into the, the gospel churches where they yell out amen right here. I mean, this is amen stuff. Right, there we go. Who said that, Jan? All right, good. Or Debbie, all right, all right. And one thing that happens here in the book of John, right here in the first chapter, I want you to remember this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's not the John that's writing the book (laughs) that confused me as a kid. He's John the Baptist who's related to Jesus. And will you remember with me, please, that when they were in the wombs of their mothers, John the Baptist, his heart, his person leapt for joy at the meeting, so to speak, of the two. You remember that in the Luke chapter 1. And this one, John, came for a witness to bear witness of the light. That's a big theme in this book, light and darkness. And also, witness and testimony is a massive theme through John. Why? Because John is writing this so that people will believe in Jesus as the Christ the one who was predicted, that's in chapter 20. The one who was predicted in the scriptures, but also that they'll believe he's the son of God. I don't, uh, he says, I want you to believe that he's predicted in the scriptures, but also that he's the son of God. That's why John is writing it, and he's writing it very much with legal undertones. I think 47 times in the book of John, I think, right in that range. Anyway, around in the middle 40s. He uses witness and testimony. He's trying to prove to us, and he's doing a great job, that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God, the Christos. So he comes, it says, for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man. You know this. That's in the book of John. And remember... The next day, verse 29, chapter 1, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, everybody watch, everybody look. He said, behold. Make sure you fix your gaze here, John said. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's really important. There's his mission, is to take the sin of the world. Sometimes in the evangelical church, we say, well, if you'll surrender your life to Christ, everything's going to be better with your life and you're going to have serenity and peace. And yes, that's a byproduct, but that's not the main mission. The main mission is, is that men and women, boys and girls would be saved from their sins. Jesus is the one who washes us clean by the blood Do good things happen like peace and strength and joy from that? Oh, yeah, of course. 
But the main mission is that he's the Lamb of God. And you know, this is great. He, this is he of whom I said, verse 30, after he, me, comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's always existed. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Wherefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Listen, folks. In the book of John, it doesn't recount the baptism of Jesus, or excuse me, it doesn't give you the story of the baptism of Jesus. John, the writer, just tells you that it happened. And the thing that he tells you is a dove came and landed on his shoulder, where we see all at one time the Trinity, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Remember what God said at this time? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Out of the heavens we hear that. You see the son, the father, and the dove, the Holy Spirit, three in one. How many gods we believe in? One. How many persons? Three. One God, three persons. And you see it as his baptism. And here it was, his privilege to baptism, baptize his relative, the one who was preferred before him, the one who was before him. Why am I going through all this? Because it, it has to do with our story here today. You remember this later in chapter one? There's some followers of John the Baptist who actually leave John the Baptist and go to be followers of Jesus, a couple of the disciples. So I want you to stick that in your mind. Okay? Here you have a guy who was called, and Jesus himself said it's the, he's the greatest prophet of all time, John the Baptist. Here you have a guy who's been called to go out into the wilderness and to live a life of, you know, not great clothes and doesn't have the best automobiles. And, you know, he's called to go out in the wilderness and just, you know, nose to the grindstone, hand to the plow, do what the Lord says, no, you know, comforts, nothing. And he's out there doing what the Lord asks. And now he's about ready to give up his place as the person who's entering or ushering in the gospel. He's going to have to give that up. And that's going to become a problem for the people who follow him here in a second. That's what's happening here in our story. That's why I read you all of this. Because in chapter 2, remember, we started looking at the seven or eight signs that John the writer, not the Baptist, John the writer puts into his book. And you know it, first miracle, water into wine at the uh, village of Cana. And we talked all about that. And remember, he uses the word signs in the book of John, not miracles. I think he does it on purpose. A sign, there's something behind the meaning of the picture. Like a red thing that is an octagon. If you go through this, you're going to be breaking a law. It doesn't say that. It just says stop, right? If you go through this, you could kill somebody. That's all behind the meaning. You're going to be in real danger if you come through here. But it doesn't say it on the sign. You just know there's meaning behind it. And that's what is happening here in the book. And he starts out with this sign. And then the second thing that happens is on the Passover, Jesus cleanses the temple. The temple. The place where the Jews, it was everything to them, spiritually. 
and uh, socially and everything, which means Jesus had the authority to do this. And now in chapter three, we get to this place where um, Jesus is going to, uh, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit through Jesus here is going to show us three separate people, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews in Judea, Jerusalem, in other words. Then he's going to go up to Samaria. We're going to see that in chapter four. And then he's going to talk to a Samaritan woman. And in chapter five, we're going to see up in Galilee. What's that? Man, good sermon, I guess, huh? Up in chapter five, up in chapter five, we're going to see a nobleman's son being uh, healed. And what's interesting about this, watch, is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that's what the cleansing of the temple sort of, uh, and, and the new, excuse me, the water into wine sort of picture. Jesus is going to go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Galilee, just watch this just like he's asked us to do. He's giving us a picture here of what he can do if you'll let him. In fact, he's commanded us to make disciples and go to these places, our Judeas or Jerusalems, our Samarias, our ends of the earth, and make disciples. Not just preach, that's part of it, but to make disciples. And that's what Jesus does. And then, so we, we did that and we went through chapter three where he gives this amazing picture into the heart of who Jesus is with the number one most important thing for all of us, that our sins would be taken away and that we would be born again as Nicodemus asked. It's the most important question for everyone. Jesus is not a great moral teacher, folks. He is that. But that's not all he is. He's the son of God who died and rose again. And when you surrender your life to him, you become in the theological world regenerated. You have, you're born again. All Christians are born again. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't really know much about Christianity. When I heard somebody was born again, I thought it meant they were a freak. Just being honest. And I am a freak. I'm a Jesus freak. But all Christians are born again. You get it? You can't be a Christian and not be born again. So that's where we left off. And the reason I went through all of that is because now, watch this, it's like the batons being handed off. If you know what track and field is like. The baton. Here, be, here comes John the baptizer who's going to do this. Fade away. And onto the scene comes Jesus, although he's already been there. The point is, it's now his time. And now we're going to see it. And what's beautiful about this piece of scripture is, again, you get to look into the eyes of the sun. Here we go. Chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, what are these things? These things apparently are his preaching to Nicodemus, his talking with Nicodemus at night, Nick at night. He talks to Nicodemus at night. 
and it's in the area of Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is in Judea, but apparently Jesus, for a number of reasons, is moving out into the land of Judea. I I want you to just take a little time out, just so you'll know. Jesus, or excuse me, John the writer, not John the Baptist, John the writer deals more with Jesus's ministry in Judea than any of the other gospels. I pointed that out to you at the beginning. If you had a comparison, you would see there's nothing in the other gospels about what we're reading. John, for reasons that the Holy Spirit revealed to him or gave to him or showed to him, is writing and telling us about this early, almost one-year period of Jesus down in Judea, okay? That's what's happening. And it appears that, uh, because what we're going to read here in a minute, he's moved now out into the countryside. What's really fascinating if you go to Israel is you can be in uh, Jerusalem one minute, and 14 miles later, 14 miles, folks, you're in the Judean wilderness. Now, there's lots of traffic, so sometimes it takes long, but I mean... Like that, you're there. But 14 miles, I want you to put in a bus, is a lot different than 14 miles downhill walking. Right? 14 miles is a long way, but to them, not really. And so here, he takes his disciples and they go into the land of Judea. And there, he remained with them and baptized. Now, i got to take another time out. This is amazing. That word there, remained is a word in the uh, Greek that literally means rubbed away, rubbed away. So he remained with them and baptized. He was there. He remained with them. And this uh, got me thinking. I mean, the Lord really put it on my heart here. This is something that Jesus did. He rubbed shoulders with people. You get that. I mean... Aren't you interested, like me, in Luke 24? Here's how my mind goes. In Luke 24, why don't you turn over there? And we're talking about why and and the, the fact that Jesus is interested in people. There's a word there in the Greek, he remained, he stayed. He rubbed shoulders with, he rubbed off on. Are you getting what he's doing there? It's right there in this little piece of scripture that's passing the baton from John the Baptist to Jesus. Uh, But it's there and it's important. And you know it, don't you? You know, if I had risen again, I'm not so sure. I, I probably, well, how do I say this? I mean, it's just so special What if you read what happened after Jesus rose again. And one of these stories you love, I think. He's walking to this place, and there are these people that have a conversation with him. And he talks to them and talks to them. uh, Look in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounds to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I, I just, what I'm trying to say here is, if I had risen again, I probably would have just gotten on with business. Hey, not now. I got to get to heaven. Here you got just a couple people, folks. Just a couple. Jesus himself. He appears to them. Watch this. He walks with them. 
He talks with them. He does a word study or a Bible study with them from the, I mean, he goes through the whole thing as he's walking with them and then read what happens in verse 28. Then they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther. That's touching. I probably would have said, hey, see you later. I got business to do. He would have gone farther, but they constrained him saying, hey, abide with us. What does John 15 tell us to do? Abide in Christ and fruit is going to grow out of your life like you wouldn't believe if you'd be an abider, if you'll just stay under Christ. Here they abide with him or abide with them. Look at this. For it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. I mean, don't just skip over that. (laughs) He's risen. And he goes in to stay with them. And now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, he blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. What are they exercising as their eyes are opened? Interesting. It's communion, of course. They don't even really know it. It's fellowship. And watch, it's thankfulness, praise. And bang, their eyes are opened. And they knew him. What does John 17.3 tell us that eternal life is? It's knowing him. And they knew him and he vanished from their sight and they said to one another, didn't our hearts or our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? You see what he's saying? Young people, old people, everybody in between. Miracles are fine. We want them. I'm praying for them. It's amazing when they happen. But the thing that keeps your heart stoked is the Word of God. That's where you see truth and it does something to the heart and your heart praises Him out of it. It burned and He broke it and He gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And so, oh, excuse me. Your heart burned within us while He talked with us on the road and while He opened the Scripture to us. So they rose up, returned to Jerusalem, found the eleven and those who were with them and said, the Lord is risen indeed, man. And that's what proved it to them. Here's the point I'm trying to make. As I see over here, he remained with them and there uh, and baptized. Is Jesus was the ultimate discipler. He's the ultimate discipler. Now think about how he discipled. By the way, the Bible calls you to be a discipler. Not just a person who shares the gospel. You should do that. But once somebody surrenders their life to Christ, we should now grow them and watch what Jesus does. It doesn't take a genius just to figure it out. He walks with them and he talks with them. He takes them into his life. He walks 14 miles into the desert with them. He walks to Galilee, which is about 50 miles away. He comes back and forth and they stay together and they spend time together. And as they move to and fro on the roads, what do you think Jesus was doing? Just what he was doing there. He was sharing the scriptures. He was 
teaching them, sharing the word, talking about life, talking about situations. Uh, I'm sure they gave to him their hopes, their dreams, their failures, their sorrows. They talked about it all. The Bible calls you and I to be disciplers. I think at all times we ought to A, be being discipled by somebody and being a disciple of others. The great eradication of that process, you want to know what it is? American life. Am I against America? No, I'm for America. But here you got to be sensitive, folks. You and I, we get too busy to disciple people. It could even be that we're too busy to disciple our own children. Ouch. And what does discipleship look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. But let me just give you a few things. The first thing is, is that you as a disciple maker should follow the things that Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, that we are to follow after him, hard after Jesus, and 24, deny ourselves and take up our cross. How can we show others to live the crucified life if we're not living the crucified life? Get it? What else? John 8. We'll read about it here in a couple weeks. That's optimistic. But anyway, John 8. We'll read about it in a couple weeks. We're to abide in his word, verses 31 through 38. Do you have, listen, do you have a great love for the word of God? Well, Jesus did. And he passed it on to the people he was walking with. He didn't just talk about the pirates or the draft or the news. He was talking about the things of the word. That's what a discipler does. Here's another thing. Out of the Proverbs. It's almost too hard to believe sometimes when you read it. Find a friend that it can injure you with your words. What? I don't think it means injure you so much as tell you the truth. Find people in discipleship relationship that's not just yes, 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 you're doing great, you're wonderful, blah, blah, blah. You say, ah, you, maybe you need to take a look at this in your life. And then if you're in that relationship, don't be so sensitive. The Lord's putting you in that place for you to grow and to be discipled. Everybody getting it? Why do you think it says iron sharpens iron? Why do you think it's, it calls us in the New Testament stones being fit together? Because we have sharp edges. I got news for you. You have sharp edges. So do I. And God brings people into your life to round those things together so we can be fit together. Don't be so sensitive. Yeah, good. There we go. <laughs> I mean, to grow in the Lord, criticism isn't bad. We even hate the word here in America, but criticism is good. And here, what else can we see uh, in a discipleship relationship? We find people who will tell us the truth, uh, lovingly, of course, but still truth. We find people who sharpen us. Uh, we find people who deny themselves and take up the cross, and we relay that on, and we show people how we do that. We take them when we're serving, when it's not convenient. We take them to the hospital and visit people because that's what we do as Christians. We love people. That takes sacrifice. We abide in his words. We In 2 Timothy, listen to this one, for the men. You're to teach others to teach. 
And for the women in Titus, you're to teach the younger ladies about life, man. Do life with them. You're being discipled by one, but now you're discipling. discipling. But above all, in John 13, you're to love one another because the Bible says, whatever they say about you, he believes something that's nutty, he does these nutty things, but man, that lady, that disciple, that person loves people. They could never not say that. Right there in John 13, it says, how are they going to know that you're his disciples, that you love one another? That's another part of it. So you could keep going. Uh, Colossians 1 tells us to mature others in Christ. Bring people uh, up in uh, maturity as we grow in Christ. How about this? Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Exhort one another and don't be uh, hardened by sin. There's discipleship, folks. And you and I and we live that out in our homes and other people. And we ought to be receiving discipleship. You get that? And why did I get onto that? Because I see this and it's touching from the Lord. Right off the bat in his ministry, he remains. He rubs shoulders. He's discipling. He's doing it all the time. We shouldn't think of it like this. Okay, here's my discipleship materials over here on my desk. And you know what? Uh, Tomorrow from two to four, I'm going to do discipleship. That's not what Jesus did. It was a lifestyle of discipleship. So he goes and he remained with them and he baptized. But we know he actually didn't do the actual dunking. You know why? Because over in John chapter four, verse two, it says this, therefore, or go to one to begin. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, you believe this? There's jealousy down there. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So what Jesus was doing was probably teaching and his disciples were actually doing the physical labor or work of baptizing. What were they doing? They probably were just doing an extension of what John the baptizer was doing, and that's a baptism of repentance. And so, but this is interesting. John also was baptizing, hit it, folks. They told me they had a map. In Anon near Salim. Is it up there? And Anon means springs or double springs near Salim. Oh, wow, we're really sophisticated here. Near Salim, and that's in between the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. What our handy-dandy map folks don't know back there is there's two sites. One's closer to the Dead Sea called uh, Anon of Salim, and they don't know which it is. But when you go to Israel, there's a place that you can stop. Uh, the creek, it's the Jordan River, but it's about from this pulpit to maybe Paul out there. It's not very wide. You can see Jordan right on the other side. I mean, it's right there. And uh, lots of people go there, uh, but they don't know if it's exactly where it was. But you get the general idea. They're out in the wilderness near the Jordan River. John also is baptizing near Salim, Anon near Salim, because there was much water there. So think about this, folks. You got the forerunner to the Messiah. Can you imagine being the forerunner to Messiah? Had, did all these things out in the wilderness, never got the comforts of the big city or all that, had to eat, what? He had to eat insects? 
you kidding me? And, uh, you, you know, all this sort of thing and just lived out there. And uh, here's the amazing part about John the baptizer. There's never, watch, there's never a hint of bitterness from him. There is a hint of bitterness from his disciples. We're going to see that in a minute. But here he is, he's going to pass the baton. And he gives this this amazing picture of a stable, healthy, wonderful, God-fearing person that never does what Teddy Roosevelt coined. Teddy Roosevelt coined this this, uh, little truism that everybody quotes and they look for it in the Bible. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. We're called to have joy and are supplied joy. But what happens is, is when we compare things, our marriages, our kids, our health, our money, our prestige, our power, our place, our position, when we start to compare things, what happens to us? Our joy goes right in the toilet. Why me, Lord? Why us? Look what you're doing over there with the Joneses. Why not us? Ever come across your lips or been in your heart? Yes, there's a tendency there. Well, here he is. John the Baptist is doing his thing with his disciples. He's out in the wilderness. Jesus comes on the scene with his disciples. They're close to each other somewhere up near the handy dandy map. And they're doing their thing. And it appears that um, there are more people going over to Jesus' side. They're like, we want to get in line over there and get baptized. We know that because down in verse 25, there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to him you have testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Now notice who the players are. This isn't John the Baptist saying, I'm jealous. This is uh, the dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews, probably Pharisees. By the way, there's a couple manuscripts that only call that Jew, not Jews. And so some people believe it was Nicodemus talking to them just for your student learning. But if it's the Jews, it's the Pharisees, it's the religious people coming out to John's disciples and look what they're doing. Hey, did you know Jesus's camp is getting way more people down at the river than you are? That's what they're saying. It's like when pastors say, hey, uh, so how many are in your church? It happens all the time. Or how many come to your youth group? Oh man, we're running about four or 500 a week. I love it when they say running. And they say running, trust me, they say it. Right? And we compare and then you're just like, oh shoot, well we better do more programs and blah, 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 blah. So it started back then. In fact, Moses had this problem. Jesus had this problem. And here, John the Baptist Apparently, his disciples are starting to feel a little slighted here. And they came to John, those ones. Man, that one, he's baptizing more than you are, folks. So John gives an answer. Here's John's answer. And if you want to see a healthy, spiritual person, if you want to be 
A healthy spiritual person. You'll note this next section because here is health at its best. You want to get rid of comparison and the stealer of joy, which is comparison. You want to get rid of that? Well, follow what John the Baptist did. Here's what John said. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Oh my goodness. He just shoots it right out of the water. There's no root of bitterness getting into John the Baptist's heart. And maybe today you have a root of bitterness in your heart about something that's happening in your life. Maybe you do. Why, why, why? Can't believe it didn't happen to them, but it happened to me. Well, John gives you the answer. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given. Every time you see the word given in the Bible or give or gift, you know what you should come to? The thought you should come to? It's another word that starts with G. It's grace. The grace of God from heaven has said to John the Baptist, you're going to be the forerunner. And there's going to come a time when you're going to go off the scene and hand the baton off to the Messiah. And God doesn't say like this, okay with you? He just gives you the assignment. So here, just think about it. Maybe your assignment is to uh, put the roof on the church. Well, praise the Lord, you can put the roof on the church. But you want to be the guy speaking on Sundays, Well, maybe the Lord's called you to set up the chairs. That's okay. If you don't have chairs, we can't do this. Maybe he's called you to clean. Fantastic. Maybe he's called you to be a greeter. Wonderful. Maybe he's called you to do the AV, the audio, whatever. I don't even know the designations. But anyway, you know what I mean. The video, the audio, maybe he's done that. Maybe he's called you to serve in VBS. Maybe he's called you to do street evangelism. I don't know. But we're all in this. If you read the New Testament, it says we're part of a body. You ever had a broken thumb? I had a broken thumb once. Yeah, who's got it? Luke had a broken thumb. Maybe a couple of them, as I recall. (laughs) That's not really that funny, but anyway. (laughs) You ever tried to button your shirt with a broken thumb? You, You just can't do it, folks. You can't do it. You need somebody to help you. You go, well, it's just that. I know, but I. you ever tried to put on your belt buckle with broken thumb or tie your shoes? You can't do it. You need help. And the Lord says that we're all in this together. We're all different parts of the body, and we need each other. We can't button our shirt or put on our belt without the thumb, whatever it is. You get the point. And here, John the Baptist is so healthy here spiritually Because he remembers one thing. Whatever the Lord has given me, he's given me. And I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. And I'm not going to look across the fence and say, oh man, I can't play an instrument. This stinks. Or whatever. It comes from him. And that takes the bitterness, the root of bitterness out of all of this. Because he's given you something to do that we can't do. And here he just says it. I can, uh, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him. This is the place where your 
not drawing attention to each other. You're happy with being inconspicuous. Here's what uh, G. Campbell Morgan says. This verse calls, this verse calls for a recognition of the final ultimate authority of heaven. A person receives nothing, whether it be the call to or the powerful, uh, a preliminary ministry like John's. If you have a preliminary ministry like John, you don't think it's the marquee ministry. He's still giving you the call and the power to do it. And it comes straight from heaven. But he could also give you the messianic fulfillment of the eternal purpose. And none of it can happen except by the authority of heaven. You get that? Man, it just makes us so important in the wheel here of what we're trying to do, which is to equip saints, make disciples. We're all in this together. No bitterness. That means no rivalries. No competition. I'm, for one, think competition is fine. I think we should keep score at little league baseball games and teach kids to lose and win and all that sort of thing. I think that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You can serve unto the Lord within the rules of the game. Worship Him. But within the spiritual life of the church and with people, there's no rivalry, no competition. Tonight at 7 o'clock at the prayer meeting. I hope we all pray for all gospel teaching churches here and up and down the river and wherever we are to be filled and full and blessed so that many would come to know Jesus and that we're not sad because they have 500 people at their meetings and we only have whatever we have. You get it? There's no rivalries. There's no competition. That's what this says. Amazing. That's what a healthy person is and does. We recognize, and that's what a healthy church recognizes uh, and does. We recognize anything that was ever given to us wasn't even ours anyway. It was given by God. It was so graceful. So he says then in second verse here, or 28, the next verse, you yourselves bear the witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. Within the context of all of that, the grace of God, it's amazing. I'm fine with the role you have given me, Lord. I'm fine with it. In fact, I'm more than fine. I'm happy. I'm joyful. You've given me a role, and that's amazing to me. Whatever that role is, that's what you've given me, whether it's in the wilderness or in the city, whether it's walking a lot and eating bugs for your glory, I'll do that, or having the food of the, you know, in the cosmopolitan areas, whatever it is, Lord. And Lord, if you tell me uh, that I need to go off the scene and you need to hand the baton off to somebody else, perfect. Praise you, Lord. Because I know that you love me, and I know that you've given me grace, and I know you've chosen me for this important uh, uh, work and uh, uh, thing that you've asked me to do within the body. I am not the one, but I've just been sent before him, and that's wonderful to me. Well, then he goes on in verse 29, such a beautiful verse. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, speaking of spiritual health. You want to be spiritual, healthy? Look at John the Baptist. Well, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But uh, the friend of the bridegroom, wait a minute, he who, uh, he, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. That's so amazing. You see, in the Eastern cultures, the best man was sort of more important at the wedding ceremony than the dad. You know what the dad does, right? The dad walks the bride down the aisle. Remember that? Well, that's not really how it happened in the Eastern cultures back then. What it was was that the, bro- or the groom himself was one who didn't talk as the ceremony began or even before the ceremony. And they had this You know, the the, the best man. I mean, here it's the friend of the bridegroom, but it's the best man, the one who stands up with him. And the best man was sort of important. He would be the one who'd have the bride on his arm. And what he would do is he would give over the bride to his groom or to her groom, his friend, everybody tracking. And then he knew when the bridegroom spoke, when he heard his voice, he could leave and go into the background. And it was a joyous time. And see, you know what would really be a drag about that? If the best man sort of tried to make the wedding about himself. What if he stood up there at the marriage ceremony and sort of right then said, hey, you know what, I'm so happy for these two. And, uh, you, you know, he sort of dominated the proceedings and he, you know, told some jokes, sort of like the bachelor, anyway, whatever. And he told some jokes and he just sort of made it about himself. If you were out in the audience, what would you say? Dude, sit down. It's not about you. Well, that's the point. He recognized that he was the friend of the bridegroom. And when he went to the background, I want you to see this. That's when he rejoiced. Because he knew that the purpose for which he had been called is being put together. It's actually being executed. And what's interesting about that is in the New Testament... You see, over in 2 Corinthians 11, it says this, For I am jealous for you, Paul wrote, with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. You know what the Lord is doing in the church today? God's calling out a people for his name, the church, we're the bride of Christ, and we're going to be put together with him He's going to come back and claim his bride and take it to heaven. Us. And that's when the joy happens. And here, anybody who's taken part in that, and this is what I want you to see. You say, well, man, I'm not a Billy Graham. I haven't preached to 100,000 people in city after city after city. I don't have a radio program. I haven't written any books. And while all of those are important and I love all of those things and are praying for those things, Jesus gave you the pattern for you to be just like John. Discipleship. We went over it earlier. You're just growing people or helping to grow people in maturity in Christ so that when they die, or if the Lord comes before, but when they die and they go to be with the Lord, 
They're presented there by his blood. You've had, a, had, a, had just some sort of part in that, you see? Isn't that beautiful? And you're happy about that. You don't have to be the main person. You're just a person in doing what the Lord's called you to do. See, here's the thing I want you to see. You're never going to have joy because you have more money in your 401k. I mean, that's good and all, fine, wonderful. Bible says that giving's a gift, so there's good stuff about that. But you're, you're never going to be joyful because you missed, you know, all your kids growing up. Because you were hard at work. The joy that you're going to really have deep down in, you're going to have real joy, watch this, is when you serve the Lord in the way in which he's called you. That's where joy is found. Even if nobody, zero, zip, knows that you're doing it. Incredible. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands in here and rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And there's this thing you see in the best man where he's like, yes, he's in the background. He's just like, yes, it's happening. That's what makes me joyful. You see, that's the spiritually healthy Christian or church. It's the one who's for the Lord's agenda, not their agenda. It's the one where that we serve and not uh, be out to be served. Well, here it says something amazing. Here's where we get to the passing of the baton. Because when we serve in this way, he must increase. John says, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know this, it's like the star in the evening, or excuse me, in the nighttime that when the sun comes up, it sort of loses its luster in the rising and glory of the sun. It's still there, but it's overshadowed by the sun that's risen. And that's what's happening here. He's just going into the background and he's totally, completely, 100% happy with it. I alluded to this earlier, but in Luke 7, remember, Jesus said, there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. The qualities that the world tells you are so fantastic and wonderful. Just watch a football game or a basketball game. I would laugh. What? The Lord's given you legs and breath and air and strength and uh, intelligence, and now you're playing a game that you love, and you get into the end zone, and it's, look at me. And that's what life is like. But not John. Not John the Baptist. He goes on, verses 31 through 36. There's a debate about who's saying this. The theologians debate this. Is this... John the Baptist? Is it Jesus? Is it John the writer? I'll let you be a Berean and figure that out. I think it's John the writer, but that's just me. He who comes from above is above all. He who comes from above is above all. Here we go. We're going to act like eagles from here to the end of the chapter. He who comes from above. First thing you need to know about Jesus, he comes straight out of heaven. The one that he's passing the baton to comes out of heaven. 
He's from above, but he's not just from above. He's above all. He's preeminent. You could read Colossians about that, the preeminence of Christ. He is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. That's John the Baptist. It's not criticizing John the Baptist. It's just the fact. We're passing the baton here, and I want to give you a good reason, John the writer says, that we're passing the baton or that the Lord passed the baton. And that's because John was a great prophet, but he's just a person. And the things he does... He doesn't do in the fullness that Jesus does because he's from above. See, this is putting to rest who Jesus is. This is saying that Jesus is from heaven. He's God. He who comes from above is above all. He's of the earth, is earthly and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. And now watch. You're peering in to the council of the Trinity right here. Watch this. He who comes from heaven is above all, verse 32, and what he has seen, oh boy. Think about what Jesus has seen. There's never been a time that he didn't see. And there's never will be a time that he won't see. Do you get that? He's been seeing all the truths of heaven. In him is all the wisdom He's been seeing everything. He has seen and he has heard. In other words, this is probably a reference to the divine commission that the Father said to him before he left heaven. You get it? It's his commission. It's the evangel. It's this that you're going to be the one that everybody is going to trust or not trust. All eternal life depends upon you, Jesus. And everything that he's heard and everything that he's seen, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He's saying here that when you read and see Jesus, when they saw Jesus then, now when you find out about Jesus here through his word, he's testifying to the things of heaven. But people don't want to believe because they love the darkness better than the light. We read that before, remember? Also, the devil, the enemy of our souls, blinds the eyes of those who don't see. And men suppress the truth, Romans. We we read all that. But here's the point. Jesus testifies. Notice it's a legal court word. It's about being in court. No one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Do you know this? Listen, if you are a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, you could be called before the court of heaven. You'd put up your hand, you'd say the oath, and you'd say, hey, listen, only thing I can do is testify to what I know, and here's what I know that God is true and that Jesus is his son who was sent from heaven, is God himself, the God-man who came and saved us or died on the cross to save us from our sins. And that's true. Remember what I always tell you about Josh McDowell. He searched for all those years, (laughs) pushed himself back from the table and said, it's true. 
He's true. That's what we find in Jesus, the truth. He died. He rose again. He really did. For he whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. So look, what does this mean? Well, Jesus speaks the word of God. He's God himself. That's amazing. But Jesus also was a man and had the Spirit. And what this is saying when it says does not give the Spirit by measure, he gives out the fullness of the Spirit. Remember, all the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, the Bible tells us, right? But here's the beautiful part. (laughs) He'll give to you the Spirit of God fully. In other words, God doesn't give the Spirit by measure. (laughs) Ah, let me see, Andy. Okay, a little bit. Xander, I don't know. He might need just that much. See, that's not what the Lord's talking about right here. He's saying, I'll pour out the Holy Spirit into your life without measure. Well, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand, the authority of Jesus. And now here comes the big uppercut, the one, the thing that the writer wants you to know. He doesn't pull any punches. It sort of is a reiteration of chapter 18. 18 times 2, 36. I don't know why that just came into my mind. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. If you're not in Christ, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God abides on you. You're not different than everybody else. It's always abided on all of us before we were Christians. And what happens was we believed in the Son and we received, watch this, as we were born again, we received everlasting life. What most people think is, oh, well, when you die, you're going to get everlasting life. Not true. You get everlasting life the minute you surrender your life to Christ. Whoa! You see why the Lord calls us to be different and set apart? He who believes in the Son. Have you believed in the Son? If you have, you have everlasting life. If you haven't, the wrath of God abides on him. It's easy but profound. What do you take as a next step? Believe. Trust. Put your faith in Christ. Repent. All repent means is agree with God about who you are. You're a sinner that can be saved by grace. And when you surrender to Christ, boom, you come into eternal life. Go back to verse 18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because we're born into sin. We have a sin nature and we sin. So we're sinners by nature and by deed, which means when we come into the world, I know we're cute, or at least some of us are, and when we come into the world, we're cute and cuddly and all that, and we say, well, we're innocent. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, but spiritually, you're not innocent. So you're condemned, and the wrath of God is on you. And so for those who place their trust in Christ, 
everlasting life. And here's where, watch, here's where real health spiritually comes. Because where you formerly was all about yourself or a lot about yourself, the Lord gives you a new heart to be about him. And when you're about him, joy pours out. You're not bothered by people doing different or better things. You're rooting for them. You're happy for them. You root them on. And there's everlasting life. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have our worship team come back up. By the way, thanks to our worship team. We love them so much. They come here every so often from our sister church, from a sister church. And we're just so thankful for them and their hearts to worship. And we love them so much. So please tell them that uh, before you leave. And second of all, though, what are we going to do as they come up? Here's the thing. We're going to pray right now. If there's anybody in here who has never received Jesus or really trusted Jesus for salvation, then now's the time to do it. I mean, I mean, he appeared, folks. If Jesus died, if he died, and it's clear he died, and if he rose again, and that's pretty clear, I mean, seriously, if you wanted to just defeat Christianity, it had been so easy back then to defeat Christianity. Just show them the body, the dead body. That's all you had to do. But they couldn't because the tomb was empty and he was alive or is alive. Yes. So here, as they come up and we're going to worship one more time, I probably sprung it on them. I don't even know if we talked about this, but oh, well. They're professionals. I'm going to pray right now. And if you want to pray that prayer, you pray along with me. And for those of us who've been touched today, I mean, think about it. You're looking right into the eyes of the sun. Are you a discipler? Or have you let life get in the way? Be a discipler. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here this morning and... For anybody here, Lord, that doesn't know you in a real and saving way, we pray for repentance and salvation. We pray, Lord, that anybody here would admit that they're a sinner. We all admit that. And that you have the only provision to return us back to the Father, reconcile us back to the Father. And that's your son, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that we can come and be reconciled to you and be with you forever, eternal life. Lord, and along the way, you, you are after other people too. And so I pray you'd help us to be serious and real about discipleship as you give us the resource and strength to do it. I pray that you would help us to teach and to exhort and bring along in life other people so that they would go out and multiply other disciples until you come back, Lord. Lord, help us. We thank you that you will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.